0: This is the Medici Podcast, Episode 21, The Rising Sun. I know Rising Sun is probably one of the most obvious wordplays you can make in this case, but it really is just too relevant. Because Lorenzo di Piero di Medici was exactly that. From a very early age, he was seen as the future of the family. So much so that his poor father, Piero, through no fault of his own, was seen as little more than a placeholder, whose most important job was to live long enough for Lorenzo to reach adulthood. The man history would one day remember as Lorenzo the Magnificent was born on New Year's Day of 1449. His grandfather Cosimo was still alive when Lorenzo was a child. Lorenzo remembered his grandfather with awe. However, he saw him rarely. It was instead much closer to his grandmother, Contesina, until her death in 1473. There is even a touching story of how, while at the Medici country estate at Caffeggiolo, Lorenzo and Contesina rode together on a donkey on their way to hear mass at a country monastery. Despite the donkey's small size and the fact that Contesina was balanced precariously on it, she was amazed at, quote, She would be so much better at it than she thought possible. For his education, Lorenzo had some of the best teachers available, naturally enough for uh, Medici. His chief tutor was Gentile Becchi, a priest and poet who no doubt inspired Lorenzo's own dabbling in literature. Lorenzo also got to enjoy conversations with and lectures from scholars and artists, including his grandfather's own friend. Marsilio Ficino. From him, Lorenzo learned firsthand about Platonic philosophy. Lorenzo was a good student, although Gentile's letters to Lorenzo's father, Piero, suggest that Lorenzo wasn't motivated just by a love of learning, but a desire to please his stern, overbearing father. In any case, Lorenzo was a bright student. He was also athletic. Who loved as a child exploring the fields and forests around his family's estates in the Magello. Unlike his father, he was also healthy, although he did inherit his mother's eczema, which would cause him to also constantly seek relief by going to thermal baths. One thing Lorenzo was not blessed with was good looks, at least according to his own contemporaries. Lorenzo especially ran afoul of contemporary standards of beauty, which preferred fair skin and found him too swarthy. But honestly, if you've been paying attention to the portraits I've been posting on the website, the men of the Medici family do not have an excess of handsome jeans in the gene pool, to put it nicely. But maybe that's just me. Here is a physical description of Lorenzo from Miles J. Unger's biography, Magnifico. Above an athletic frame, bony and long-limbed, was a rough-hewn face. His nose, which was flattened and turned to the side as if it had once been broken, gave him something of the look of a street brawler, and the prominent jaw that caused his lower lip to jut out pugnaciously did nothing to soften this impression. Beneath heavy brows peered black, piercing eyes more suggestive of animal cunning than refined intelligence. Dark hair, parted in the middle, hung down to his shoulders, providing a stern frame to his irregular features. Even a close friend, Niccolo Valori, was forced to admit that nature had been a stepmother to him with regard to his personal appearance. Nonetheless, continued Valori, when it came to the inner man, she truly acted as a kindly mother. Although his face was not handsome, it was full of such dignity as to command respect." Valori's description was actually far kinder than the one given by the famous Machiavelli. Machiavelli, who was a contemporary of Lorenzo's, compared him in a letter to a friend to an unattractive prostitute he had sex with one night. Of course, looks did not stop Lorenzo when he grew older from becoming a ladies' man, and possibly not just that according to some people. But for now, let's hold off on a deep dive into Lorenzo's private. As I mentioned a few episodes back, Cosimo supposedly glimpsed Lorenzo's potential even when he was a very young child. These claims might have been hindsight, but it is true that from very early on, Lorenzo was entrusted with significant responsibilities. He was only five years old when he led a procession of adults and children to greet Duke René of Anjou at the gates of Florence and recited a list of memorized greetings. At six, while he was recuperating from eczema at a mineral bath, he was given the rather ironic title of Lord of the Baths, which meant he had to preside over parties and picnics with the children of Florence's richest families. He was at least eleven when he was expected to communicate with and talk with his own clients, we know that because we still have his first surviving letter, written in 1460, which asks for a favor for a Calumato from Arezzo. One year later, he wrote to his father on behalf of a certain Grisso, who wanted a job as a government notary. And when he was, in modern terms, a teenager, he was responsible for a diplomatic mission to no one less than the King of Naples and the Pope. There's two conclusions we can draw from all this. One, Lorenzo was not being reared like the son of a banker or even a Republican statesman, but like a prince whose role in society would be to lead without question. Second, and more personally, well, it is true that before the 20th century or so in the West, our ideas of childhood and adulthood were very different. While today we don't usually consider someone to really be mature until they're 18 or in their mid-20s or possibly even later, people back then were expected to work or were placed in roles of responsibility at what we would today consider very young ages. Still, even for the era, Piero's sickness and the lack of adult men in the main branch of the Medici family, besides Lorenzo's spectacularly unambitious cousin, Piero Francesco, meant Lorenzo as a child had a lot of responsibility on his little shoulders. Perhaps even almost from the moment he first became aware of himself and his place in the world. I agree with Miles G. Unger that this must have all left a deep mark on Lorenzo's psyche. No wonder he was so eager to please his father, and why he lovingly described his mother, Lucrezia as the person who helped shoulder his burdens. We get a particularly personal glimpse into how all of this affected Lorenzo, in a philosophical poem he wrote as an adult, titled The Supreme Good. Quote, I do not know of riches or honor sweeter than this life of yours, one free of all political intrigue. And in fact, throughout his life, Lorenzo would enjoy escaping from the city and spending at least a few days in the countryside. And as much as he was eager to be the public face of his father's regime, once while on a state visit to the town of Pistoria, Lorenzo asked his father for permission to also go to nearby Pisa and Luca, admitting that while he would deal with diplomatic business there, he also just wanted an excuse to go fishing. If Lorenzo did have pastoral fantasies about fleeing to the countryside, Life was, if anything, going to take him in the opposite direction. De Medici had risen high since his great-grandfather Giovanni de' Bici's day, and Lorenzo's parents, Piero and Lucrezia, had aspirations for the family to rise even higher. And one of the sure ways to go up even further on a social ladder, even today in some cases, is through a good marriage. Now, Lorenzo's sisters, like many Medici women, were engaged to marry into the usual banking dynasties comprising the Florentine upper crust. Maria and Bianca were wed to the bankers Leonetto di Rossi and Giuliano di Pazzi, respectively. Lucrezia the Younger, whom in private life the family called Nanina to help distinguish her from her mother married another member of a banking dynasty, Bernardo Rucellai, who was also an accomplished humanist scholar and historian. But these were all just big fish in the Florentine pond. Lorenzo and his younger brother Giuliano would be paired with women from the wider world outside Florence. We don't know for sure, but it seems like having such ambitious matches for her sons was mostly, if not entirely, Lucrezia's idea. So Giuliano was engaged to marry the daughter of Jacopo Appiani, an accomplished general and the territorial lord of the city of Piombino near Siena. Sierzo Lorenzo was intended for an even grander match namely Clarissa Orsini, or Clarice in the English rendering. Clarissa was the niece of the cardinal Latino Orsini, one of the movers and shakers in both the Vatican and Rome itself. More than that, though, Clarissa represented one of the most distinguished clans in not just the city of Rome, but all of Italy. The Orsini traced their ancestry directly back to the Giulio Claudians the first imperial dynasty of ancient Rome. Which would also mean they could put the first emperor Augustus, Julius Caesar, and even the Trojan hero Aeneas, and the Roman goddess of love Venus, on their family tree. Now, if you're an ancient history buff like I am, you might be thinking, wait, I've seen I. Claudius. Didn't the Julio-Claudians do a fantastic job of wiping themselves out? Well, yeah, but there were a couple of survivors. Specifically, Augustus's great-granddaughter, Amelia Lepida, and the Emperor Tiberius' own great-granddaughter, Rubelia Bassa. We can even trace their descendants as late as the 2nd century CE. So, bottom line, it's not outside the realm of possibility. But it's also worth noting that, much like how English people like to claim they can trace their families back to the Norman conquest, and Americans love to talk about their Cherokee or Puritan ancestors, all the Roman noble families claim to be descendants of one of the great families of the ancient Roman Republic. In fact, the Orsini's own centuries-long bitter rivals, the Colonna family also claimed they had Julio-Claudian blood in their veins. So that makes it rather unlikely. Still though, personally, I really want to believe that the Julio-Claudian tendency to murder themselves was so strong it resurfaced far in the future in the form of two of the most notorious feuding aristocratic clans in European history. Anyway. The point is, a marriage to someone like Cladice Orsini would have been a coup for the Medici. And as you might expect, it wasn't an easy achievement. In fact, it took a year and a half for both families to hash out the marriage contract. During that time, Lucrezia also insisted on getting a good look at her future daughter-in-law by visiting her and her family at Rome. We have a letter she wrote to Piero in which she described Clodice like any expert appraiser would describe some objet d'art, but also with a touch of intense maternal pride. We talked for some time, and I looked closely at the girl. As I said, she is of good height and has a nice complexion, her manners are gentle, though not so winning as those of our girls, but she is very modest and would soon learn our customs. She has not fair hair, because here there are no fair women. Her hair is reddish and abundant, her face rather round, but it does not displease me. Her throat is fairly elegant, but it seems to me a little meager or to speak better slight. Her bosom I could not see, as here the women are entirely covered up, but it appeared to me of good proportions. She does not carry her head proudly like our girls, but pokes it a little forward. I think she was shy. Indeed, I see no fault in her, save shyness. Her hands are long and delicate. In short, I think the girl was much above the common, though she cannot compare with Maria, Lucrezia, and Bianca. Once the marriage negotiations were finished for the 20-year-old Lorenzo and the 16-year-old Clarice, Lorenzo was greeted warmly by the Orsini. Uncle Latino started addressing Lorenzo as our nephew. Clarice was also educated in Florentine manners by Piero's brother-in-law, Giovanni Tornabuoni, who was still managing the Medici bank office in Rome. He wrote glowingly back to Piero and Lucrezia, Not a day passes when I do not see your Madonna, Clarice, and she has bewitched me. She is beautiful, has the sweetest of manners, and an admirable intelligence. She has begun to learn to dance, and each day she learns a new one. To celebrate their marriage, which was initially sealed by proxy. A joust was held in Florence on the morning of February 7th, 1469, the same day the proxy marriage was to be sealed. The star of the show was, of course, Lorenzo, wearing armor and a helmet invoking the Roman god of war, Mars. It was less an actual mock battle and more a celebration of the growing nostalgia for the golden age of medieval chivalry. It was also as clear a declaration as any that the Medici were no longer just another family of bankers. In fact, Lorenzo would see the joust as a highlight of his life. How so did he and Clodice feel about their marriage? We don't really know. We do have a dutiful letter Clodice wrote to Lorenzo about the joust that she did not get to see. I have received a letter from you which was most pleasing to me, telling me of the tournament in which you gained much honour. I am most glad that you have been satisfied in the thing which gives you pleasure, and if my prayers have been granted in this, I, as a person who desires to do something to give you pleasure, am well satisfied. I beg you to commend me to my father Piero, to my mother Lucretia. To Madonna Contesina, and to all others you think right, I commend myself to you no more. Still, this glowing letter came after Clodyssen refused to write to Lorenzo for several weeks since he had not written to her and was known to be busy preparing for the joust. It's also possible Clarice might have heard nasty rumors about a certain woman who could have been present at the Joust, and who could have been Lorenzo's lover. She was Lucrezia Donati, a member of one of Florence's oldest noble families, who you might remember from my episodes about the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. Laetitia Donati was also a woman who was already married, which would have made any affair between her and Lorenzo particularly scandalous. But to be honest, we don't know for sure what her relationship with Lorenzo was, if there was any relationship at all. It is true that one of Lorenzo's friends, the poet Luigi Pulci, did write a poem about the joust, in which Lorenzo honors Lucrezia Donati in the manner of knights with their ladies in the age of chivalry. Perhaps Luigi was hinting at a scandalous secret that was well known among Lorenzo's inner circle, or maybe he was just making a joke taken from the unfounded gossip of the day. All we can say is that, in his own writings at the time, Lorenzo had nothing to say about his marriage except for one brief comment. And it's a comment that carries zero sentiment. Quote, A bride was given to me. Whatever their misgivings, the two had a formal marriage in Florence that year on June 4th. The festivities were massive, with hundreds of barrels of wine said to be consumed at the house of Lorenzo's uncle Carlo alone. There was, though, a severe rainstorm, which caught many of the guests unprepared. Still, though, the weather could not spoil what was considered one of the best celebrations the city had seen in a generation. Now, as for Lorenzo's father, Piero, He had been continually relying on his sons and on Lucrezia to serve as his representatives in the city and around Italy. Piero was not only too sick to usually travel, but he increasingly became more reluctant to deal with other people, having always lacked the charisma of his father. Especially in his later years, Lucrezia, who as we've seen was perfectly qualified to run her own business affairs, became his partner in not only marriage, but business as well. She even handled some of her husband's clients and the Medici Bank's customers. For example, she even personally helped Helena, the exiled queen of Serbia, who had fled to Italy to escape the Ottoman invasion of her country, secure a loan from the Medici Bank. This is not to say, though, that Piero and Lucrezia saw each other as just business partners. Although the letters they wrote to each other early in their marriage were extremely formal, in the way of a lot of correspondence between upper-class spouses, over time their letters began to show more signs of personal feeling. For example, when Lucrezia once fell seriously ill, Piero wrote to her, have faith and obey the doctors, and do not budge one jot from their orders. Bear and suffer everything, if not for yourself and for us, for the love of God who is helping you. But as much as he relied on his wife and sons, Pietro did keep track of politics and kept involved in art patronage. While I did mention before that it seems Piero viewed art more through the eyes of a businessman than a true connoisseur, that isn't to say he wasn't appreciative toward art and its creators. For example, Piero paid a pension to the sculptor Donatello, who was old enough to have worked for his grandfather, Giovanni di Bici. When Donatello died in December of 1466,
1: Piero and his family,
0: along with the most popular artists of the city, led a funeral procession. Piero had even granted Donatello's request to be buried in the Church of San Lorenzo, near the resting place of Cosimo de' Medici himself. Piero also commissioned Luca della Robbia, who was the future president of the Guild of Sculptors, to carve some terracotta reliefs for the walls of his study in the Medici Palace. The artist Paolo di Doni's paintings of birds and other animals decorated the walls of the palace as well. Paolo was also commissioned to make a painting commemorating a 1423 victory of Florence over the Sienese. Sandro Botticelli was also a favorite artist of Piero's. Piero hired him frequently, before he relocated to Rome, where he would be one of the artists hired to work on the Sistine Chapel. Piero also personally overlooked the artist Benozzo Gozzoli's Adoration of the Magi, a series of murals that both depicted the Magi arriving to meet the infant Jesus Christ and the Medici family themselves, along with depictions of the historic Council of Florence, with the Pope and the Byzantine Emperor that Cosimo initiated. From this, it seems like Pietro was a bit of a micromanager. This is based on the fact that it was Pietro who told Guzzoli that he painted an angel who looked out of place in one of the murals. The artist thanked him for his criticism. If his gratitude was genuine, who knows, but my bet would be probably not and Godzoli agreed to cover up the angel with a fluffy little cloud. By the time of Lorenzo's marriage to Clisi, though, it was clear that Pietro's gout was finally catching up to him after all these years. Racked with pain, he had himself carried to the family villa at where he could barely lift his head off the pillow. As he lay there dying, the corruption and unpopularity of his lieutenants, especially the statesman Tommaso Sararini, had come to a head. Piero was so horrified by the reports, trickling back to him, of how flagrantly his inner circle had been lining their pockets with state revenues. He even considered allowing some of the exiles from the party of the hill to return,
1: just to serve as
0: a check on them. However, he either decided it was a bad idea, or he was too weak to risk it. And at the same time, a foreign crisis was about to rear its head. The region of the Romana had long been a sore spot in Italian politics, since it was technically under the rule of the Papal States, but in actuality the territory was controlled by numerous feudal magnates who had most paid lip service to Papal authority and were not at all reluctant to side with governments hostile to the Pope. This time, the Signore of the Romana city of Rimini, Sigismondo Pendolfo Malatesta, had died. He left behind a wife, Isoda, and a legitimate son in his infancy, but also an adult illegitimate son, Roberto. When Roberto violently seized control of Rimini, the Pope, seeing a chance to strengthen his grip on the Romana, supported Isoda. Meanwhile, Roberto got the support of Florence's allies, Milan and Naples. The Republic of Venice, afraid that Milan might seize the opportunity to consolidate its influence in northern Italy, also threatened to intervene on Isoda in the Pope's behalf. Since the height of Cosimo's power, the Medici had more or less near total control of Florence's foreign policy. However, the prospect of being dragged into another pan Italian conflict by the Medici's ally Milan stoked serious resistance in the government for the first time since the heyday of the Party of the Hill. Either because of the pressure or because his fatal illness was affecting his judgment, Pietro seriously considered giving some support to the faction in the government that wanted to break the extremely valuable alliance with Milan, even though such a decision could have left Florence dangerously isolated. This is when Lorenzo, who had always been loyal to his father's political policies, stepped up and openly defied him. He wrote a series of groveling letters to Do Galeazzo Maria of Milan, all but explicitly telling the Duke that he only had to wait for Piero to die, and the friendship between Florence and Milan would once again be secure. The Duke did not have to wait long. On the afternoon of December 2nd, 1469, surrounded by priests, friends, clients, and his family, Piero had a seizure and then passed away. It was now finally time for the 20-year-old Lorenzo to sit on the invisible throne of the Medici, and he would have to do so at a time when confidence in his father's ruling cabal was sinking and when the political situation in Italy was once again threatening to boil over. It was time to see if Lorenzo would live up to his family's expectations. Let me take a moment to thank our first Patreon subscriber, Catherine Roby. Again, it's just me running the podcast. I have no advertisers, and I'm not part of a network. So support goes a long way of keeping me motivated and being able to access research, new equipment, and so on. So if you enjoy the show, please rate us and review us, especially on iTunes where we still get the lion's share of new listeners. And as always, feel free to check out MediciPodcast.com where you can see bibliographies, images, and more. Buona notte.